So as we finished up last week with our study through 2 Corinthians, uh, that concluded almost all of 2023 where we only spent time in the church uh, in Corinth. And so the question was at the meal last week, what book are we going to next? What spot are we going to land in? And I was elusive. I'm like that. I'm like a cheetah. You know, I'm very nimble. And so I avoided the question. Uh, but here's the answer. We are going to be studying through the book of Genesis together. Now, as we do that, though, uh, in praying through it, uh, the Lord led me to this, and also practicality. Uh, we're going to have the Christmas season coming upon us, and so we're going to start the book of Genesis, and then stop, and then pick up again. And it seemed like it was going to be a little clunky, and so uh, where I landed, and what God really revealed was we could spend a little bit of time over the next three weeks going through the Christmas story. As we make our way towards uh, that particular time, and uh, we're going to spend time together on Christmas Eve. We'll be in Luke chapter 2. But before we get there, I wanted to look at the prequel. Where do we really see all these things beginning in the Gospel of Luke? And so today, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be spending time in Luke and beginning in chapter 1. And so, as you guys head that way, Luke chapter 1, I'll begin by reading these first four verses. There's only 80 verses in Luke chapter 1. Thankfully, we're going to break it up into two weeks, so you're welcome. Uh, the Lord is gracious and He is merciful. Uh, verse 1 says, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. And so we begin the Gospel of Luke. It's important to understand that these Gospel accounts that we read, these four Gospels, really present different uh, eyewitness takes on things. In fact, um, three of the four seem to present to us direct eyewitness accounts. And by that I mean uh, the book of Matthew. Matthew was a disciple of Jesus, and so he was able to write about the things he saw. Similarly with John. And then when we get to the book of Mark, there's question marks. Well, Mark wasn't a disciple. That's true, but it appears to us he was a young man, specifically around the disciples uh, during the Passion Week. And so he was able to observe what was happening in the life of Jesus. And many Bible scholars believe that Mark actually took the dictation from the Apostle Peter. And it, this was... Uh, Peter's account that Mark uh, writes down and uh, communicates to us. And so all that leaves us with Luke, who is the only Gentile writer in the New Testament. He was a, a Greek, and he was also, we find, a doctor. And that makes sense as we read through this letter, because he gives a very detailed, almost meticulous account of these events. And that makes sense for a guy who was a physician. Now, what Paul addresses him as in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14 is the good physician. And so he was a good physician. He wasn't bad at it. He was a good doctor. And what we find is that in that day, many times, often a doctor was typically a servant or a slave to a very wealthy master in the Roman Empire. And so when we arrive to this spot and he's writing this documentation to a person named Most Excellent Theophilus, many believe that Luke was documenting these things for the person who was his former slave owner. Now this is an interesting name and people have supposed this Theophilus a person. Is it a group of people? Uh, what I would share with you is that some believe that as the uh, this child was born and they held him 
him up there in the doctor's office. He said, this is the awfulest looking kid I've ever seen. So that's what some have thought, that it's Bible humor. There's only so much I can do, okay? But that said, the word or the name Theophilus is actually, uh, in reality, a combination of two Greek words. It is theo, where we get our word theology or study of God, and phileo, uh, phileus, it means love. And so the name means God lover. So what it would, uh, what we can suppose from this, and many have come to this conclusion, is that Theophilus was a very wealthy man who was converted to Christ Jesus and became a lover of God. He became a God lover, and as a result, he released Luke from being a slave and actually gave him the opportunity to serve none other than the Apostle Paul, to come alongside Paul, who had many physical ailments and actually traveled with the Apostle Paul during missionary journeys. In fact, if you turn to Acts chapter 16, which was also written by Luke to most excellent Theophilus, he writes this, but as he writes in Acts chapter 16, Luke up to this point has talked about they and them and had been always in the third person. But when you arrive in verse 10 of Acts 16, he writes, now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Luke switches the tense to first person because he now joined the Apostle Paul on these missionary journeys. And so Luke was right there to be a part of things and to also document things very meticulously like you would expect from a doctor. Now, many probably couldn't read Luke's writing like most doctors, but that's beside the point. We have Luke documenting this, and he's going to get into the story here in verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and his wife was one of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. And so what we see is now in this story, we pick up 400 years after the time of Malachi. And the reason that's important is Malachi is the last prophet in the Old Testament. And so these years are what they say are the silent years where God didn't speak through a prophet. And the prophet was always the mouthpiece of God. A a prophet's job was to, to take a word from the Lord and give it to the people. And so up to this point, there had been no prophet in the land to take a word from the Lord and then give it to the people. For 400 years, this had taken place. And at this time, the Roman Empire ruled all of the known world, but in the area of Israel, they had put under a man's authority named Herod. They had given him the job of king or governor or ruler of this particular part of the world. And he was known historically by many as Herod the Great. There are many Herods in the Bible, I believe five if you go through and count them, but this is the father of all of them. This is Herod the Great. Now, he was called Herod the Great, but the reality is he was not so great of a guy. He was terrible as a human being. In fact, uh, Augustus Caesar said of Herod the Great that it would be better to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his sons. And so for Herod, he was known as one who would execute anyone who would come up against him and challenge his authority, including his wives and his own children. So not a great guy. Fantastic uh, builder, not a great human being. But this is the guy that's going to come into play later on in the story of the birth of Jesus. So he was ruling over the area. The second person we're introduced to is Zacharias, who we're told was a son of Aaron. He was a priest by his 
lineage. And so as a priest, he was able to go into the temple and actually serve the Lord there in the temple in Jerusalem. But when he wasn't at the temple, he was just doing his regular day job. Until he was called up out of the miners, he stayed down in the bullpen just doing his regular work, farming or whatever it happened to be. And so he was married to a woman named Elizabeth, and both of them were well advanced in years and had no children. Now, it's important to understand that in their society in that day, if you did not have children, it was considered a curse upon you. And so here, Elizabeth and Zacharias, not able to have children, her womb was barren and everyone was whispering about, there must be some kind of hidden sin here. Somehow God has it out for these two. They must not be righteous. They appear to be doing really well, but there must be something going on. You know what the way people talk. It was the same 2,000 years ago. And so we see this is the case happening. And yet, in verse 6, what God wants to make clear is they were both righteous before God. And before the Lord, they were blameless. And this causes me to take a second look at this because oftentimes, if I'm just being very honest with you, I can make presuppositions. I can determine things and judge things in my mind just based upon face value. I can, I can make up whole stories about things that, that may be completely and totally false and made up. And this is the case uh, for Zacharias and for Elizabeth. People had supposed things about them that were not true. God looked at them and he saw them as righteous in right standing with God. Now we continue in verse 8. And so it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. And so as Zacharias was getting his opportunity to go there in Jerusalem and serve at the temple, his lot was drawn. In other words, it was his lucky day if you believed in luck, but he got the opportunity to go into the temple. And this was the holiest of places, not the holy of holies. That was reserved for only the high priest once a year. That day was Yom Kippur. But outside of that, to to minister and to serve inside the temple, you had to be a Levite and you had to be a descendant of Aaron. And you had to be chosen to go in and do this job. And as he was chosen, the job he was chosen for was to offer incense upon the altar directly outside of the Holy of Holies. And the altar of incense was all the way back in Exodus chapter 30, verse 7. This is God giving Moses command of this 1,500 years before Zacharias comes on the scene. Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning, and he, when he tends to the lamps, he shall burn incense on it. And so the idea is this incense was to burn continuously in the house of the Lord. And the reason I bring that up is to say that this incense was symbolic of prayers rising up to God. And so continuously the prayers of the people were to rise up to Him. The prayers specifically of the saints. Now many of you in here think, I'm I'm not a saint. You don't know my track record. I'm no saint. Here's, Here's the true definition of a saint though. A saint is a sinner saved by grace. And what I see are a lot of sinners who've been saved by grace. And really, in God's economy, there's only two groups of people. Um, you're either a saint or you're an ain't. You're one or the other. You're either, you're either a sinner saved by grace or you're not. And here's the thing. If you're an ain't and you'd like to be a saint, simply lay things down at the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, come save me. And now you're a saint. You're a sinner saved by grace. And so there's only saints and there's ain'ts in God's economy. And verse 13, we continue. 
Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And so here's Zacharias, and he's, he's just doing his thing, right? He, he's not doing anything outside of what he'd been called to do. He had been given a job, he'd been given a task, and he was just serving the way God had called him in that season to serve, and that's where God spoke to him. I say that because often we think, I've got to be doing a certain thing, I've got to be doing it this way, there's probably a a manner with which I, I have to sit or fold my hands or pray or whatever the case may be in order for me to hear from God. But here's Zacharias just doing what he was called to do. Just putting one foot in front of the other, and there, there God found him in that spot. And what he says, and this is in the Brock Ashley version, so I'll preface it. He says, uh, don't freak out. Now this is an angel, an angelic creature in the temple telling him don't freak out because he's about to freak out. This is a big deal to see the angel Gabriel there. And so he says, don't freak out. But then he follows it up by saying, your prayer is heard. What prayer? Zacharias is just doing his thing. What prayer is he referring to? He goes on to explain that your wife will become pregnant and you will have a child and you shall name the child John. But here's the reality. If you're in Zacharias' head, it's been years since you prayed that prayer. This, This is a prayer you prayed for decades that your wife wouldn't be barren. For years you cried out to the Lord, time and time again. And yet over and over again she didn't have a child. And so most likely this is a prayer that he'd given up on. This wasn't a prayer that he had just done today. This was a past prayer. But what the angel says, Gabriel speaking to him, says, your prayer is heard. I bring that up to say that so many times we have these prayers that we think are past, that are has-been, that are old, and no longer valid. But in God's economy and in His timing, these are prayers that are heard. He is hearing our prayers. In fact, if you go with me to Revelation chapter 8, and when we talk about things like the temple and the tabernacle specifically, we wonder why all this, uh, why all these you know, dozens of chapters on the tabernacle in the Old Testament, I get tired of reading it, but what we find is these are actually a, a picture of the heavenly realm. And so as we look at what the tabernacle layout is, this was to give us an idea of what heaven's layout looks like. And here in Revelation chapter 8, John gets a vision of heaven, and this is what he sees in verse 3. And then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. What we find is in the heavenly realms... There are prayers continuously going up before the Lord. And in God's timing, these prayers are in the present tense. These prayers are actually now. These things are happening. And so many times we give up. We just write these things off and say, look, it can't be. It's not going to happen for us. And yet what God is saying is these prayers are now, and I am active in your life now. And the reason I bring that up and say it's a big deal is because you know where I need the most help? Now. I need help now. I'm thankful that God is the God of the future and He's the God of the past, but where my problems are, are now. My problems are current. They are happening right here in the spot that I'm in. And so what we find is, so often, for each of us, we're tempted to just give up, right? Like, 
I've been praying for that person in my life for decades. I've been praying for this situation in my life over and over again, and it never seems to happen. I'm just going to give up. And what we find is God even honors those prayers that you and I gave up on. Those prayers that we just said, That's, that thing's too old. I'm not going to continue to pray. He, he hears our prayers. God is hearing our prayers. And it is all done in His timing and in His uh, will. These things are all listened to by God, and His goal is to get the most glory and the most good for the most people. And so what we find is in this story, for Zacharias and Elizabeth, he, here the angel says, not only is your prayer heard, but you shall have a son, and you shall name him John. And what I love about that is the name John in Hebrew means God is gracious. Here they've thought they've got no grace, they've received no mercy whatsoever, and yet what the Lord wants to point out is God is gracious to you. Even when doubt creeps in, even when you think it's time to give up, God is still gracious. And what is grace? But grace is getting what I do not deserve. Mercy is not getting what I do deserve. Grace is getting what I do not deserve. And God here in this spot sees Zacharias and Elizabeth, and he is gracious. He continues in verse 14, uh, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Verse 17, he will also go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias, verse 18, said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. So what we see is the angel proclaims to Zacharias, You're, You should have joy and gladness. This should be a joyful and a glad time. Your prayer has been answered. And yet what Zacharias meets it with is cynicism and questioning. He was trying to be realistic. He's like, look, have you seen my wife and I? We are old. I don't know in the angelic realm if you know how these things work. But uh, things ain't happening like what they used to happen. Right? We, we are well past this point of being able to have a baby. This thing is crazy. It doesn't make sense. And he's cynical about it. And as a result, he doesn't have joy. I bring that up to say this is what cynicism always does. Cynicism robs us of our joy when God wants us to be joyful. Cynicism makes us fold our arms, and you do realize you can't celebrate with your arms folded. That nobody's going to go to the basketball game later this afternoon and celebrate with their arms folded. We're going to get our hands up. And celebrate, right? This is how we're called to celebrate. It's with hands up, not with arms folded. And here's the thing. Zacharias has just been given a word from the Lord about a prophecy spoken 400 years before. If you go with me to Malachi chapter 4, remember from Matthew to Malachi, although it's only a page or two, it's 400 years. This is the last words in the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, verse 5, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. The final words the Lord gave them in the Old Testament are now coming to pass. Four centuries have taken place, and yet Zacharias cannot celebrate because he's too cynical. Now, we continue in verse 19. 
And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring to you glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. As we studied through First and Second Corinthians, this is what Paul said to the church in Corinth in his second letter. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse thirteen says, And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, and therefore I spoke. When we also believe and therefore speak. Paul's recommendation was we should believe and then we should speak. Here, Zechariah is in a spot where he did not believe and therefore he could not speak. In fact, if you go and you read in the uh, Old King James Version, which uh, I grew up Baptist and so we knew that that was the way Jesus actually spoke was in the Old King James. And what, what it says there is, therefore you shall be dumb. When you think about that, that, that way to, to consider it and translate it, it's if you don't believe what God's doing, it, it literally makes you dumb. It makes you not no longer able to utter anything intelligent. What wisdom are you coming with? You're coming with the wisdom of the world, not the wisdom of God. And so it can render us dumb, unable to speak, or unable to speak anything that's of any value. And so the better answer for Zacharias would be to say, look, I don't know how you're going to do it, God but I just trust you that you're going to do it. And when you really look at anybody that's got a a testimony of transformation, this is the testimony. It's, uh, long story short, God saved my life. I mean, I, I don't know how, I don't know why, other than He loves me, that's the only answer I can come up to, but He just, He just did it. He just took over and He did it. Now as we continue in verse 21, and the people waited for Zacharias, and they marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came, verse 22, out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned uh, to them and remained speechless. And so it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, he departed uh, to his own house. And so the people, they had waited for Zacharias to come out of the temple. And they were waiting there to be blessed. And it had gotten to be a really long service. Apparently they weren't as holy as uh, the people of Woodlawn Chapel. who were like, sometimes he goes 35 minutes, sometimes 40. We're just waiting on him to bless us. Please just bless us. I'm hungry. And so we're looking for a blessing. This is the spot they were in. Like, please come out and bless us already. And as he came out, he couldn't speak. He just flapped his hands around like a crazy person. And being perceptive, they're like, something must have happened in there. Something must have. We don't know, but he's acting like a crazy person. Something He must have seen a vision as they waited on the blessing. Verse 24. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived... And she hid herself five months, saying, verse 25, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when He looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. Here's what I love about this. Do you notice God's Word had nothing to do with Zacharias' belief? God's Word was going to happen whether Zacharias believed it or not. This is the Word of God. It is going to be placed. His kingdom is going to come. His will is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven, whether you want it to or not. And so you can either get on board with the Word of God, or you can be left behind, quite literally. 
And this is the choice that each of us have to make. But His Word, His will is going to be accomplished. It is not going to be returned void. It is going to accomplish the purposes that He's set for it. So it's going to take place. The Word of God that's gone forth, it's going to come to pass. Now, verse 26 as we transition. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And so we see the angel now coming to Mary in the sixth month. What sixth month? This is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Six months in, the angel shows up to Mary, and what we find is she was betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now, again, cultural reference. Oftentimes in their culture, uh, children would be engaged at a very young age. In fact, you could have toddlers that moms and dads, uh, uh, parents of different families go, you know, we'd love our families to be connected, united together. And so we've got a little girl here. You've got a little boy. We're going to commit these two to be engaged in one another. And as they would grow up, they would then get to the age of 14, 15, 16 years old. They would then transition from engagement to betrothal. And this was the formal contract being put in place. And as a a child was betrothed to another child, this would be as if they were truly husband and wife. The contract would be executed and the husband would come in and he would bring a dowry to pay for, to to pay the price to have uh, this young lady as his bride. And as they would become husband and wife, they however would not consummate the marriage. That for the young man, he would then leave, he would go back to typically his father's house, and he would add on. He would build a room onto the father's house and get it prepared and ready. And once it was ready, he would then come back at a time that the bride didn't know. She had to just be ready for her husband to come in and swoop her in and take her away to bring her back to the father's house. And so all this... I didn't put this in the notes, but if you turn with me to John chapter 14, verse 2 is where we'll pick up. This points to the relationship that we have with Jesus. He says, In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know in the way you know. That Jesus is saying, I am the groom. I'm going to go to my Father's house where there are many mansions, many rooms, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I do that, I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you. You're my bride. I have paid the price for you. He had paid a a steep price for each of us in here. And His promise is to then return for us. And what we're to do is to keep ourselves on the lookout. To keep ourselves as Mary was pure and in a spot where we can look out waiting for our groom to return so that he will triumphantly come back and get us. I'm going to get myself all sidetracked and excited, but this is the idea that we're looking at with Mary and Joseph. She's waiting on him to return, and while she waits, she's greeted, visited by an angel. But notice with me multiple times here in these verses, her virginity is mentioned. Her virginity was necessary for a couple reasons. Uh, Purity and then also so that prophecy can be fulfilled. If you go with me to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, this was a prophecy spoken of the coming Messiah 700 years before the time we're reading 
in Luke. In verse 14, it says, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so this prophetic word was given to Isaiah seven centuries before it would actually be fulfilled, but it was necessary that she was a virgin. Otherwise, I hate to be Captain Obvious, it's not a miracle. It's not a miracle that someone who's not a virgin gives birth. But a a virgin giving birth, now that's miraculous. That speaks of something otherworldly, something supernatural taking place. And so her virginity is mentioned, and I say that to say that she had to be pure. As the bride of Christ, we're called to be pure. Now as I I bring that up, I want to ask this question. If she wasn't pure, would she have still been loved by God? And the answer is, absolutely. She would be loved by God. She would still uh, be able to be forgiven by God. And as we uh, come into this room, none of us truly pure. Understand that forgiveness is there. That we can be forgiven. That we can be absolved. That we can be made right and right standing with God. And yet, this follow-up needs to be asked, especially to the young people in the room. Sorry to be picking on you. I won't do it next week, maybe. But um, if she wasn't pure, would she have been able to be blessed in this way? And the answer is no. She would not have been able to have carried the Son of God in this fashion had she given up her purity. And so, too, this plays out in our lives. That often we're we're brought in a spot to compromise. And and many times I, I thought as a kid growing up, you know, that, All God wants to do is take all the fun things away. God just doesn't let us do anything fun. But understand that it wasn't that God doesn't want us to experience anything fun or enjoyable. What He's actually trying to do is protect us so that we can receive the blessings He has in mind. This is a way different way to look at this. That He he desires for us to be blessed in certain ways that as we give things up in our life, we're not going to be able to be blessed. There are things that I have given up in my life, that I'm, I'm not going to receive a blessing in some areas of my life. That's just the reality. It doesn't mean God loves me any less. It doesn't mean that He won't forgive me and transform me and make me new and I'm, I'm going to be presented to Him as, as pure and, and holy and, and all these great things. But there, there are blessings in this life that I have missed out on because of compromises that I have made. And so it's important for us to understand that. And even in the spot we're in now, it, this encourages us not to continue to compromise. <laughs> to, to, to draw a line in the sand and say no more compromising because I'm not missing out on any more blessings. I am not going to miss out on anything that God has in store for me. It's so much better than what the world has, which is only temporary. Now, continuing in verse 28. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among Women, I mean, what a greeting. Here the angel Gabriel greets Mary with this greeting. He says, you're highly favored. I mean, high, wow. The word in the Greek, I don't know exactly how you pronounce it, but it's uh, karatu or charatu, however you say that. But it only appears one other time in the New Testament. Here it appears speaking directly of Mary. And if you go with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, this is the only other spot I found it. Uh, I'll pick up in uh, verse 5. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will, 
to the praise of the glory of His grace by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. This phrase, made us accepted, is this Greek word, karatu. He has made us highly favored. It's speaking of us as saints. This is the spot He's put us in, to be in a place where we can receive favor. But I want to note that the favor that we can receive isn't dependent upon who we are or what we can do. It's not dependent on who you are. It's dependent upon whose you are. I am highly favored because of whose I am, because I exist in the Father, because of the price the Son paid, and I am now a part of Him. I'm a part of His family, and as a result, I am now blessed. I am now highly favored. And this is the spot where we find each of us today, if we accept Jesus, Mary's in this spot, and she is called by the angel Gabriel, blessed among women. Notice with me, it's not blessed above women. It's blessed among. There is only one who is called above all the rest, and that is the one, the God-man, Jesus the Christ Himself. He is the only one above. All the rest of us are in the among crowd. And so Mary's been given this significant spot among women, but not above. Now, verse 29 as we continue. But when uh, she saw Him, she was troubled at His saying, and considered what manner of greeting this was. And then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. And so the angel Gabriel gives this message of the coming Messiah. This is one of those patterns you see throughout Scripture. Every time we see Gabriel in Scripture, he is always hearkening in, speaking of the coming of the Messiah. We saw it earlier in the chapter with Zacharias. We see it again here with Mary. And if you go all the way back to Daniel, 600 years earlier, we see Gabriel showing up on the scene to speak to Daniel about the coming Messiah. He's there speaking of the coming of the Lord. And so he speaks this to Mary and he says, the time is now. You're going to conceive and have a son and his name shall be Jesus. Literally translated in Hebrew, it means Jehovah is salvation. Yeshua in the Hebrew. Verse 32, He will be great and He will be called the Son of the Highest and the Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of, the, of His kingdom there will be no end. Speaking of the kingdom of Jesus, Isaiah in chapter 9, verse 6 says this, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon His shoulder and His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The government will be upon Him, literally upon His shoulder. The, the rule and the dominion of all the world. But prior to that, the government, the rule, the regulation, the requirement that was actually upon all mankind, He would take upon His shoulders in the form of a cross. He would first take that upon His shoulders to remove the requirements that you and I actually had upon ourselves. He took upon Himself going to hell, spending three days in hell, preaching, cap, preaching to the captives, actually bringing them up to heaven to set them free. And His rule would then be established forever. This is what this is speaking to. Now as we continue in verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? 
And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Notice with me, Mary didn't question the word like Zacharias did. She merely questioned the methodology. How is this going to take place? Enlighten me a little bit, because I've never known a man. And so the angel felt free to explain it to her, but where I wanted to stop is to say that she didn't understand that it took a a man for things to take place. She never knew a man. Now if you go back to uh, John chapter 5, in this story you have a, a crippled man who is there by the pool of Bethsaida, and as he's there at the pool, he's desiring to be healed. And Jesus approaches this man who'd been there for decades wanting to be healed. And as he approaches this man, he says, do you want to be made well? Like, no, duh. Of course, I've been laying on a mat for decades. I would like to be well. But he responds in verse 7, the sick man answered him and said, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool where the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. And a man cries out because he can't get to this pool that he believes is somehow going to heal him. But what he says is, there's no man to help me. So many times that we think when we are in a spot of need, we need a man or a woman to help us. If I just had a pastor, if I just had a decent boss, if I just had this out of my husband or out of my wife, if I just had these things, then I would have someone to help me. But I don't know a man like this. And yet what the angel communicates to Mary is the same thing that's true to us. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. What we need is not a man. What we need is the man. We need the Holy Spirit to come upon us. It's through His power and through His Spirit that we actually have the ability to do or accomplish anything. And so where she doesn't understand how this works, it's similar to what we get. We need the Helper. We need the Holy Spirit to come into our life and to help us and to comfort us. Not by power, not by might, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. This is the way that God comes into our lives. It's through His Spirit as we welcome Him in. Now we continue here in verse 36. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this now is the sixth month for her who, is called, who was called barren. So what we find is Elizabeth in the spot she's in is also undergoing changes. Not quite as miraculous as what Mary is experiencing, but she's about six months ahead of Mary. And so what we find is so many times as transformation begins to happen for us that God puts people in our life that are just a little bit ahead. Sometimes just six months, maybe a year ahead of us. They're a little bit further in their journey because what the enemy wants to do is convince us that we're all alone. That you're in this spot, people are going to talk, you're all alone, Mary. And what God says is you're not alone. There are people who are just a little bit ahead of you. Not so far that you can't still see the spot that they're in. You can't see the transformation in their life, and you need to go and connect with them. So we see the importance of the body of Christ. As we come together, there should be people in this group that are just a little bit ahead. And I want to encourage you, find someone a little bit ahead of you. Maybe six months, maybe a year ahead, and say, what does God do? How is this transformation happening? What's He up to in your life? And connect with them so that you can not feel like you're in a spot of loneliness. Now, 
Lastly, verse 37 and 38, for with God, nothing will be impossible. And then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In the American Standard Version, the ASV, uh, verse 37 is translated, and I actually like it better, for no word from God shall be void of power. But no word that comes from God should be void of power. That means even in a spot where I feel like I am powerless, where pain has maybe caused me to only see my past and feel like I can't accomplish these things, or how is this possible that God has actually promised to intervene and to come in through the power of His Word and take the formerly powerless and make them powerful. If you go with me one last spot, Matthew chapter 12. In this scene, there's a man in the synagogue who's got a withered hand. A hand that no doubt has caused him a shame and regret where he feels like he is somehow less than and he is not good enough to even be in the house of God. And yet here he is with his withered hand and in verse 13, Jesus comes into contact with him and he tells the man, stretch out your hand. Now can you imagine as this man's been dealing with this for years and feeling inadequate and less than and this guy comes along and says, stretch out your hand. What happens if he goes, nah, I'm good good no need to stretch out the hand i mean stretching's for girls anyway i don't stretch it's not going to do it and so he refuses to stretch out his hand my question to you is first does that mean god's word is not still powerful does it make the word of god void and i would tell you absolutely not god's word still carries all the power what's needed is this man to have enough faith to be able to listen to the word of god and then the faith can be activated His faith activates the Word of God to see healing happen in his life. The same is true for you and I. That is, we exercise faith that then the Word of God actually changes things in our lives. That what used to be powerless and seeming like it was withered up and had no power whatsoever could actually turn into a powerful testimony. Our shame can be turned to something that can actually glorify God, you see. Verse 38, as we wrap up, Mary's response was, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed. Mary's answer was, Let it be according to your word. And so many times we can get caught up in the, How is this possible? How is this going to work out? Can you lay it all out there for me, Lord? Lord, if you would just explain this thing from beginning to end, then I'd have faith. That's not called faith. That's called relying on facts. Mary's word to the Lord was, let it be whatever you've just said. Let it be according to the word of the Lord. Let it be in my life however you want this to be. And not get caught up in all the pieces in between. All this to say, if we're going to really see something powerful happen in our lives, we have to simply rely and trust in the word of the Lord. It's God's Word where the power actually dwells. And if we're going to see something powerful happen, we have to rely upon Him. As I was thinking about that this this week, and uh, the end of the year coming, getting nostalgic about this place now, a little over three years into existence, I wondered what it would have looked like if we hadn't just simply trusted in the Word of the Lord, because none of it made sense. I mean, to buy a building before you ever have a congregation apparently doesn't make sense. Uh, 
to have then a pandemic happen in March and then not open it until the middle of a pandemic in September. None of it makes sense, you see. And then on top of that, uh, I didn't read a single book about church planting or what we were supposed to do. No advertising, nothing uh, actually took place that should result in people being here today. And yet, by his spirit, he brings people. And so it's, it's his word going forth. It's, it's simply the word of God where power actually exists. You guys don't understand, but, but you are an answer to prayer. You are prayed for before you ever arrived, years beforehand, months beforehand. You were prayed over that you would be here today. The word of the Lord is, is powerful, and what we have to do is simply take him at his word, believe in him, and say, Lord, let it, let it be in accordance to your word. And then words like Romans chapter 8, verse 28 can begin to take effect in our lives. Famous verse that many of you probably have highlighted, but what Paul writes there is, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. And so if you're in a spot today where you're looking at what God's up to and you go, I don't think this is that good yet, I would tell you it's because he's not done. It's not good because he's not finished. We don't know the end of this story. We don't know how this whole thing's going to turn out. And so if it's not good, it's because he's not done. And continue to allow him to work in your lives and in the lives of the people around you, but always believe him and take him at his word. And what he has said is he works all things to, together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And so, Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your word. Father, we thank you for being present. Lord, we thank you for being a God who is in the now, in the details of our lives. Lord, I thank you that our prayers are heard, that our prayer is heard today, even if it's a prayer that we gave up on a long time ago. Lord, thank you that you didn't give up. There's a whole lot of stories in this room right here today of people who you didn't give up on, even though lots of folks did, including the ones sitting on the swivel stool right now. And so, Lord, I thank you for not giving up. I thank you for continuing to hear the prayers and the cries of your saints as they rise up to you. Later in Revelation 8, it says that the prayers went down and the earth shook. I wonder how many times we pray, not realizing that we are shaking the very foundations of the earth with our prayers. Lord, we believe you and we take your word as the truth. Please continue to work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.